0: Well, hello, friends, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. I also want to say hello to all of our friends, our Keystone folk who are at their cottage right now, tuning in. We know that you're with us because I keep getting stopped around town and people are like, yeah, I know we weren't there, but I loved when you said, and they like quote something from last week's sermon, like, it's, it's like, I'm like, excuse me, because I'm keeping score. Just keeping track, of all you people. So I'm saying. But anyway, we're glad you're with us too. Uh, we're in week two of a series called Better, and we named the series after one of the my favorite quotes of all time. I mean, I said last week I read constantly. I find quotes all the time. This one though has hung with me a few years ago at a conference. The pastor on stage said this. He said, "Following Jesus makes your life better, and following Jesus makes you better at life. Following Jesus makes your life better, and following Jesus." Makes you better at life. And I love this quote because it gets right to the heart of why I think everybody should find and follow Jesus. Like, whatever their past, whatever their present situation, your life gets better when you start to follow Jesus. And I love this quote for another reason. It sort of reminds us that before Jesus died on the cross to make a way for us to find peace with God, he also lived and loved and healed and taught and modeled a better sort of life right here and right now in the midst of this life. He showed us what it looked like to live beyond those impulses that rise in our heart that we want to do in a moment, but in the end take our life in the wrong direction. And instead, we start to tap into the sort of life that God had in mind when he created us. And to be fair, many, many people miss this idea about Jesus and about God uh, because of the way they were introduced to Christianity. I've been a pastor now for like 20 years. I've had all sorts of conversations with people uh, who have bailed from church and have reached out to sort of wonder if they've missed something. And one of the first things that I identify that many people miss is this idea that God really is for them. That he's in your corner and he wants you to find the better sort of life in the middle of this life. And, and typically when they explain, you know, why they bailed, they said and why they missed the idea that God was for them. They grew up in a religious environment where God was presented primarily as a cosmic lawgiver who comes up with endless rules. And some of you are like, You're reading my mail, right? Yeah, it comes up with endless rules in attempts to control their behavior. And as a teen especially, they started to think, I think God is against me having fun and, and against me doing the sorts of things and living the sort of life that I really want. To live, they were taught the rules of religion, and these rules are often defined as much by pastors and parents as they are Jesus, and that's a conversation for another day. Um, But they they said you got to follow the rules, and if you don't follow the rules, there'll be some sort of punishment. Punishment will fall, and you're like, well, how does that work, and when does it come, and you know that was left kind of undetermined. But they wanted you to live with this sense of you obey the rules, or else. I made a list this week of a few of my favorite rules from the 1980s, because I grew up in the 80s. What? And so kind of my church upbringing, here were some of the rules that I was introduced to pretty early on. Um, They go like this. If we look at that next slide. Uh, Yeah, here we go. First one, don't dance. Anybody have this rule growing up? Okay, I'm a skinny white guy of Dutch ancestry, I shouldn't dance. I'm just saying, that's how that goes. But, but categorically, don't dance. And my problem with the don't dance command was that I was one of those weird junior hires who actually read the Bible, right? And so when the youth pastors like, don't dance, I would sort of slip my hand up. I was like, that kid, I still kind of am, but anyway, that kid. And I would say, you know, excuse me, sir, but I, I do believe that a categorical don't dance isn't even really biblical because King David in the Old Testament, it says he danced before God. And it got real quiet in youth group, let me tell you. And then I went, on, I went on to say, and I remember last year you were trying to get us excited about the Bible and you said that when the Jewish people, when they pull their Bible out of the Bible closet that they have when they have their worship services and they carry it to the front, everyone gathers around the Bible and dances. So what do we do with that? And he just looked at me and he goes, you know what I'm talking about. And I was like, all right, that's, that's fair. Okay, next thing he said is, uh, you know, don't drink alcohol. And of course, right away, I'm like, See, because I was on Bible trivia quiz bowl thing, and I'm, (laughs) shocker, and I know that the first miracle that Jesus performed was, anybody know, water to wine, and so I just pointed out that that's a little tricky if you're going to say that, Does water to wine, and his response was, it wasn't really wine, and my response was, why did they translate it wine? (laughs) And he, and he said, oh, the Jewish people didn't drink wine back then. Listen, I've been to Israel five times. They drink wine. Okay, I'm just saying. That's just how that goes. So uh, next one was don't play cards, which I thought was absolutely insane. Um, and one person after the first service said, you know, they had that rule. You don't play cards, but you could play UNO. Which are cards? Okay, I'm just saying. But for me, I thought that's ridiculous because my family had a lake house and when we were up there and it was raining, we played euchre like for days and it was a godsend. So I don't know about this don't play cards thing. Um, This one, uh, because it was the 80s, don't listen to rap music. Um, And this was the dawn of the rap era. And honestly, as a kid, I thought that's just not even possible. Any youth youth pastor that says that has not listened to the debut album of the Beastie Boys licensed to Who's With Me. Okay, now... If you are here and you're a millennial and you're like the beastie who, here's what you need to do. This afternoon you go to Spotify or your streaming service of choice, listen to License to Ill, and you can thank me later. Okay, Uh, I remember the day he said, don't date. In fact, kiss dating goodbye, okay? And I asked why, because it seemed like that would be a way to get to know somebody. And he said, you can't date because you know where that goes. And I was like in seventh grade and I thought... To the movies? What are you talking about? I don't even know what that is. And then, uh, and then this one is my all-time favorite. Don't wash the car on Sundays. And some of you are like, whoa, that was my childhood. And uh, unless, and this was the asterisk, unless you wash it inside the garage with the garage door down so your neighbors don't see you. And I'm like, is that a rule? What in the world is that? So anyway, there are all sorts of rules that lead people to believe that God wants to take joy away from their lives. And what I've found in conversations with friends, especially those who bailed from church, is that these sorts of rules make them believe that God is like the God of the endless thou shalt nots. But the good news this morning is that nothing could be farther from the truth. If Jesus were here and you were to ask him, how should we think about the creator of the universe? How should we think about God? He would say, without missing a beat, you think of God as your heavenly father. And a few of us go... Yeah, I struggle because you never met my dad, but he was not great in my life. I had a little counseling, a little therapy, we're moving on. But, but I, I, Heavenly Father, Jesus would say, no, no, no. Not an imperfect, earthly father, but the perfection of father. A father who always is for his kids. Who always loves them, who always wants to see them thrive. And to be fair, a perfect father doesn't always let their kids do what they want when they want to do it. But God is to be viewed as a heavenly father who wants the best for his kids and and wants them to find a better life in the midst of this life. And in fact, Jesus would say, you know, if you want to find this, this better life, what you do is you need to live a with God sort of life. He would say you live in the kingdom of God. Where, the place where God is king and he is leading your life and you submit to his will and it's not about rules, it's about relationship and it's a big difference but that's how you find the better life. It isn't just rules, it's relationship. Well, with our time today, what I want to do is talk about Jesus' perspective on religious rules because I think that perspective may actually surprise a lot of us. In fact, uh, The good news is that Jesus came to give his first followers rule, not rules. Rule, not rules. I think it's a great title for a talk. I was really pumped about it, but I'm the only one, but that's okay. So to to show you what I mean, I need to take you once again this week, as we will all summer long, to the Sermon on the Mount And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is the largest single block of Jesus teaching we find anywhere in the New Testament. Bible nerds would tell you it's the blueprint for the Christian life. If you want to see what Jesus wants for his followers, you look to the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want want to focus on today is something so stunning that, that Jesus said, and it was so disruptive that his disciples, those first followers, couldn't possibly understand what he was saying, let alone absorb it. In fact, it wasn't even until after his resurrection that they began to seriously wrestle with it, and and even that took decades. So if you weren't with us last week, just let me set the stage for what Jesus says. Um, the Sermon on the Mount was delivered on a hill on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, which is the largest body of fresh water in the Middle East, but it's not huge, not a lot of water in the Middle East. You can kind of see this is the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. There's mountains to one side. Um, this would have been, this is the uh, tourist site where this picture was taken, where you go and you visit and you remember and you sit on a rock and look at the Sea of Galilee and think about life and God and faith and and then you can buy a t-shirt that says you did it. That's like how that goes. Um, but this is the northern edge, and the northern edge in Jesus' day, it was the most religiously conservative uh area of Israel. These were where the, the rule followers lived. They were small fishing villages, there was a prominent synagogue in the area where they would gather on Saturdays, Um, and so Jesus, this is the setting for this incredible conversation, and a man named Matthew, who would have been there that day, records that shortly after calling Jesus first disciples, those first 12, uh, he begins to teach, and he begins to heal, and he begins to capture the attention, not just of the area around the Sea of Galilee, but really of the entire nation of Israel, and Matthew tells us that people from as far away as Jerusalem, like 90 miles to the south, would come to see the miracle worker and to hear him teach because he was saying things that they had never heard before. He was doing things that they never saw before. He seemed to have the power of God in his hands. And so as the crowds grow, Jesus retreats with his 12 disciples and has a conversation with them that he will later have with the broader audience. Here's how Matthew sets it up for us. He says... Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And it's critical to understand that the original audience for what we're going to hear were these 12 disciples. If you said, you know, what were they like? Uh, Scholars argue they were probably high school or young college age kids, most of whom, if not all of whom, had grown up in that area along the north of the Sea of Galilee, the ultra-conservative, rule-following area of Israel. And so these guys would have been in synagogue every Saturday. They would have gone, they would have learned the Old Testament laws, they would have wrestled with how to apply them. Their religious experience would have been all about the rules. They knew they needed to dress right, walk right, talk right, eat right, and keep the Sabbath. In fact, in Jesus' day, the Jewish religion had embraced a crushing array of rules. And in the Old Testament, uh, there are 613 different commands God gives the people. Some things they should do, some things they should not do, or else. Uh, God promised, if you obey my rules, I will bless you. And if you break my rules, then punishment will fall. Well, in addition to the 613, the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day had created other rules that they sort of installed as a fence around God's rules to make sure you didn't even get close to breaking one of God's rules. They called it fencing Torah, and the Torah is just another way to speak of the law of God. Here, by the way, are a few of my favorite rules added by Jewish leaders in the modern era to ensure that Jewish people don't work on the Sabbath, which is one of the Ten Commandments. Here's a few just for fun. Uh, the first rule, don't walk over, and this is very exact, 0. 0.5681818 miles. <clears throat> they said, if you walk farther than that on the Sabbath, you're doing work. He said, where did they get that number? No idea. I googled it and I was lost. So, uh, But if, if you're in Jerusalem and you're on the Temple Mount, there are a ring of telephone poles surrounding the Temple Mount to show you when you've walked that far so you don't walk any farther. Uh, number two, don't carry something between spaces. Let's say you're a good Jewish person. You get up in the morning, you make your cup of coffee. You move it from the kitchen to the living room and you sit down, you're totally fine. What if you forgot to get the mail the last night and you go from a private space and you carry your coffee cup to a public space sorry you're breaking the command because you are working this one is one of my favorites don't tear toilet paper <laughs> just let that sit in it is very important that you prepare for the sabbath okay <laughs> because you can just imagine the scenario where somebody forgot and somebody's in the bathroom doing their in their in need and they sit there and they realize that there is no pre-torn toilet paper and they look at the roll and they look at the floor and they look back at the roll and they look up at god And they look at the roll, right? And there's this moment of like, what in the world am I going to do? So in order to prepare for the Sabbath, they will literally pre-tear squares of toilet paper, maybe two if you're hardcore, and they'll leave them as a stack. So nobody works on the Sabbath. One more, just for fun, don't push elevator buttons. Okay, I found this one out the hard way. Years ago, I was in Israel. I was in Tel Aviv, which is right on the Mediterranean. There is a high-rise hotel, 27 floors that we were staying on. And I got onto the wrong elevator. One of the elevators is designated the Sabbath elevator. And I didn't know what that meant. It was Saturday and it was the Sabbath elevator. So I got on. I'm on the second to the top floor. The elevator stops at every single floor. And it took me like 10 floors to figure out that some kid hadn't pushed all the buttons. Right? And I was like, what is going on? Well, you can ride an elevator, but according to Jewish tradition, you can't push the button. You can't make that up. So similar religious rules were in place to guide the lives of Jesus' first disciples. Similar rules and regulations, and they had been brought up to order their life around the rules. And if you'd asked these young guys, what does God want from you? They would have responded, God wants us to obey the rules. That's why we have the rules. And if you said, which ones? They would say, all of them. Rule following was at the center of the Jewish religious experience. And I set it up that way because as those disciples sat by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, what they didn't realize is that Jesus, this teacher who was teaching radical new things and who had the power of God to heal in his hands, was about to mess with their entire approach to religion and point them to something better that was coming on the horizon, something no one was expecting. He was about to introduce an entirely new way for people to relate to God. In the end, Jesus was on a mission to change everything for them and for you. He was going to prescribe a new and better way of life, a life guided by a single rule, not rules. And to do that, he was about to amend, expand, and reverse a thousand years of Jewish teaching and tradition. In fact, what we'll start to see next week is Jesus goes through a grid of examples that he begins this way. He says, you have heard that it was said, or you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, translation, your Old Testament says, your Bible says, Moses told you, and then Jesus would say, but I tell you. Like Moses told you this, that was a thousand years ago and everybody ordered their life around it for a thousand years. That's great. But hey, listen, I tell you and he's about to change it. And if you put yourself in the mindset of those first um, disciples, they're going to go, wait a minute. You you can't mess with Moses. Like who do you think you are? And Jesus would say, stay tuned. There's a good answer to that question. I can't tell you quite yet. But Jesus realized the tension that was going to surface when he started picking at the Jewish law. And so before he begins to describe the specifics of how to live a better life, he heads off their potential misunderstanding of what he came to do with these words. He said, Do not think that I have come to abolish or destroy the law or the prophets. Those are the Old Testament rules. Do you know why Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? Because they were about to think that, Je- yeah, thanks, okay, that Jesus was gonna do that. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And, and so the question then for us and for them becomes, What does it mean for Jesus to fulfill them? And the answer to that question has staggering implications. Not only for how they would read the Old Testament, but for how you and I would read the Old Testament. And Jesus hints at the answer as he continues to speak. He says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, I'm gonna leave that slide up and I'm gonna show you two things that happen that are easy to miss in this, in this verse. The first goes like this. Jesus suggests that there will come a day when the law actually disappears. And the second thing he says is that it will disappear when everything is accomplished. Moreover, he says, I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. So Jesus says he is somehow going to be intimately involved with everything being accomplished. And the disciples would have been absolutely stunned at the implications of this statement. I mean, Jesus is saying that God's rules to ancient Israel in the Old Testament will disappear once everything is accomplished. Like, how is that possible? And what do you mean everything is accomplished? And so to answer that question, we need to explore what Jesus meant when he said that he came to fulfill the law. Now, the the New Testament was originally recorded in Greek, and the Greek word that's translated fulfill actually means uh, to bring something to a designated end. In other words, Jesus didn't come to abolish or destroy the validity or the credibility of the Jewish law. He came to bring it to its designated end. I recently heard a pastor explain it this way. He said, uh, if the Jewish law were a homework assignment, Jesus was completing it. If the Jewish law were a speech, Jesus was concluding it. And if the Jewish law were a plane, Jesus was landing it. And so standing there on the shores of of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus stunned his first disciples By telling them that God's conditional, if you will, I will, follow the rules and I'll bless you, that conditional covenant was coming to an end. And moreover, it was the end that was intended from the very beginning. No longer would he interact with them in in the terms outlined at Mount Sinai. No longer would there be an endless list of rules to follow. No longer would there be an endless flow of blood from the temple in Jerusalem where people would bring animals to sacrifice when they did something that brought them out of peace with God. That covenant and that purpose was almost complete. It's like when God set that covenant with the nation of ancient Israel, he set a timer. And Jesus is saying that the timer is about to run out. One of my favorite um, Bible scholars um, that, I, that I'll read from time to time is a, a guy named John Piper. He's a, a pastor and a writer and a, a very respected teacher. He says, he says this in a book called A Peculiar Glory. He said, Jesus was not just another member in the long line of any Jewish wise men and prophets. He was the end of the line. And I love that. To be sure, many instructions from the Old Testament are no longer to be practiced, He goes on to say, but this is not because these practices and rules were wrong, but because they were temporary and were pointing forward to the day Jesus Christ would fulfill them and thus end them. The coming of Christ did not abolish them, but it did make them obsolete. The coming of Christ did not abolish them, but it did make them obsolete obsolete. And if you grew up in church, that may be something that you missed. And if it strikes you as extreme, you know a little bit of how Jesus' words would have struck those first followers that day. But again, Jesus was clear. He came to fulfill and remove the obligations of the Jewish rules of religion. He fulfilled, as in ended, the necessity of the Jewish law. And just like you don't abolish a home by completing its construction, and you don't abolish a flight plan by landing a plane, and you don't abolish a homework assignment by completing it, Jesus didn't abolish the law, He fulfilled it. And in fulfilling it, He made it unnecessary. In fulfilling it, he made it obsolete. And, and, and if, you, if you spend any time around church and you're like, whoa, obsolete, that feels really, really strong, you should know that the author of Hebrews, which is a letter in the New Testament, he uses the same language. So whenever I get in a conversation with somebody who gets spunky about this, and I hang out with people that do sometimes, I, I always say, you know, you take, take it up with the author of Hebrews because that's exactly what he says. But, but according to Jesus, the Old Testament law would disappear after everything was accomplished. And again, those first disciples may have understood what he was trying to say, but they would have no idea what that actually meant until a few years after Jesus spoke those words. Because a few years after that time on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus died a brutal death on a Roman cross. And if you're paying attention, Jesus says something on that cross just as he's dying. In fact, the last three words Jesus speaks uh, on planet Earth prior to the resurrection, and they're words that without the context don't make a lot of sense, but here's what what Jesus says. So John tells us that Jesus said three words, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and and gave up his spirit. It is finished. As I imagine Jesus on the cross, I wonder if any of the disciples heard Jesus utter those words words. And in that moment, if they were instantly brought back to that moment on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus said something that didn't make any sense, the law will begin to disappear when everything is accomplished, it is finished. And then they would recall the night before where they had that last supper, the, the famous one with Jesus, and he had held up a cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new covenant, a new relationship a whole new way for people to relate with God that somehow made possible in Jesus' blood. And they would have thought at the time, Jesus, you're not even bleeding. What are you talking about? But then the next day, he's bleeding to death on a cross and he says, it is finished. Like it's a new day. It's a new chapter. It's a new potential. Like like the rules are now gonna start to disappear The it Jesus is referring to, I'm convinced it's the conditional covenant with Israel because it had been fulfilled and no longer would people relate to God by properly navigating the maze of rules and regulations. No longer would animals need to be brought to sacrifice because the once and for all sacrifice had been offered just outside the city gates when Jesus, the Lamb of God, died for the sins of the world. Well, Jesus says um, the law will start disappearing once everything is accomplished. And that's that's an interesting way to phrase it. And the history actually bears that out because for the 30 years following the crucifixion of Jesus, the Jewish religious establishment really struggled with what to do with followers of Jesus because more and more Jewish people were turning to Jesus and turning to his way of life, which was very different than what the Jewish people had prescribed And so one by one, they were abandoning strict adherence to the rules of their synagogue. And so for 30 years, they struggled with how to respond as more and more Jews turned to Jesus. And then then there was a day where where everything really did change. Um, And it's a specific day. It's August 6th, 70 AD. And even if you're not a Bible nerd, you should know something about this date because this is an amazing, amazing day in the history of our faith. Uh, Because on August 6th in the year 70 AD, the ability for the Jewish people to adhere to the Old Testament rules became impossible because on that day, a four-year conflict between Jews and Romans came to a violent end and the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was looted and burned and destroyed. And the end of the temple marked the end of ancient Judaism. I mean, the rules lived on, to be fair, but the ability of them to live within those rules vanished in a day, just like Jesus had predicted. It disappeared, and it disappeared because God's covenant with ancient Israel was no longer needed. It had been fulfilled and replaced with a better covenant, a broader covenant that encompassed not only the Jewish people, but even Dutch people from Ada 2,000 years later. Now we're preaching, right? Yeah, It's almost, it's a covenant that anyone could enter by placing their faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. It's like, oh, so we don't need blood sacrifice anymore to be right with God. That's fantastic news. Actually, we do. But instead of a blood sacrifice that happens here and now, we place our faith in the blood sacrifice that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on the cross. And we say to God, I want to be a part of that new covenant. It's bigger and it's broader and it's better and it's God's gift of love to the world. That's the new covenant, but along with the new covenant, instead of rules, Jesus gave his first followers a single rule. It was actually a single defining ethic for Christian behavior and it was astoundingly, abundantly and even uncomfortably clear. Because on the night Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest friends, At the same meal where he talked about the new covenant in his blood, he looked at his followers and he said this. He said, a new command I give you, and they're sitting there and they're thinking he's doing it again. He's Like, Moses gave the commands. What do you mean a new command? You can't just give new commands. And Jesus says, no, a new command. And this command, by the way, isn't going to go alongside the other ones. As I said, that's disappearing. This is a new command. It's the only one you got. New command, I give you. So write it down on a napkin. Actually, don't worry about napkins because it's not very long. Here you go. Love one another. And they're waiting for more. They're like, and? Love one another. And he said, as I have loved you. So you must love one another. So it isn't just like love like humans love, love like I have loved you. And they thought back to the Jesus sort of love where Jesus demonstrated radical love and grace to people. He was patient beyond measure. He was kind. He was self-sacrificing. So they had a sense of, of the Jesus brand of love, but it was an incomplete sense until the next day when they watched their teacher put on a display of love that took their breath away because it took his breath away. And Jesus hung on a cross and bled to death so that the new covenant in his blood could be ratified. And his first disciples got it. They said, this is the message that we need to take to the world. We need to live a radical life of love while we tell everyone what God has accomplished through Jesus. And after the resurrection, they told the world and they changed the world. And the rule that Jesus came to give us, like if you're here and you're a Christian, this is for you and for me, the rule Jesus came to give us is is so much better than the endless barrage of religious rules. Because if we're honest, it's easy to hide in a maze of religious rules. Because we're humans and we always find loopholes. See also the tax code. You with me on this? Yeah, right? There's always, always a way around the rules. But when Jesus gives us this command to love like he loved, there is nowhere to hide. We almost always know what love would have us do in a situation. You're navigating life. Tension surfaces with a family member, with a kid, with a coworker. God, what should I do? And Jesus would say, love them. Love them. And but that's hard. Yep. They don't deserve it. You didn't deserve it. Right? I went first. You get to love. That's how it goes. You want to follow me? You want to find a better life? You love them. That's what, that, that's what it means to follow Jesus. You live a life of self-sacrificing love. And friends, that changes everything. Now with that as a foundation, what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that Jesus goes into specifics. So he's got a bunch of Jewish guys sitting on the hillside, Sea of Galilee, and he begins to talk to them about some of the things that Moses told them. And he starts to expand them. He said, because it isn't just about murder. It's about the heart behind murder. It isn't just about adultery. It's about the heart behind adultery. It, 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 it's like Jesus is going to over and over again go, okay, so here's the deal. He didn't tell him you had to see a galley, but you're going to get this command of love, and I'm going to show you what love requires in these situations. And if you want to follow me and you want to find a better life, this is what this looks like. So as I said last week, that the coming talks are going to, they're, they're mind-blowing, um, and they're challenging. And they'll be a little bit uncomfortable depending on your past, but honestly, the point is, is that Jesus wants to meet us here in grace, And he loves us like a perfect heavenly father, loves you enough to point you to life. And so whatever's in your past, just sort of full disclosure, whatever's in your past, you should be encouraged by the talks that are coming. You really should. Because God wants to love you right where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you right where you are. He wants to invite you forward. That's why I'm convinced um, there really is a big difference between following rules and following Jesus. Jesus. And there have been a few times where I've been meeting with friends and we've sort of been walking through some of this stuff, especially if they bailed from church and are feeling weirdly guilty about it. And so we, t- you know, we'll talk and I talk about, you know, what did you leave? Oh, all these rules, all these, okay. And I talk about this, this new command and this, this new covenant in Jesus' blood, And remember like more than a few times people look at me and said, you know, if, if I had understood that, I don't know why anybody would leave that. I don't know why anybody would run from that. That's a message of hope and grace and peace and love and acceptance to the world. I said, that's it. That's it. And that's what your heavenly father wants to invite you to be a part of. Because he loves you. And he wants the best for you. Would you stand? I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again this morning, we say thank you. Thank you for meeting us at the space where we are most undeserving and showing us grace. Thank you for second chances when we don't deserve them as well. and Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for Jesus who came to offer us freedom from religious rules and to, to go after our hearts invite us to live our lives with you as we continue to explore this incredible content I pray that your spirit would be at work in each of our hearts that you would illuminate areas that that are stealing life from us and you give us courage to submit those to you because in the end we confess we really want ultimately for our lives what you really want ultimately for our lives That's a wonderful thought and we will forever be grateful. So we thank you. We bless you. We celebrate you. We love you. In the matchless name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Everyone said amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part three of Better.